All right, and we are rolling once again. I am Lee Grant, and we are exploring faith and pursuing grace. On this episode, Kevin will not be with us, unfortunately. He is still attending to his familial needs that need to be taken care of and handled. And Kevin, we certainly look forward to having you back with us very, very soon. It is my hopes that this will be the last episode that we have in which Kevin's absence is felt. I fully expect that he'll be with us next time. I certainly hope so anyway. But in the meantime, you are stuck with me. A couple of episodes ago, we had Brother Daniel Rogers join us once again as we discussed shifting convictions and paradigm shifts that exist. In our last episode, a really good friend of mine, uh, Sarah Gonzalez, joined us, and she discussed her convictions and faith journey and how those things changed and shifted for her. And I really appreciate her taking the time to joining us and and being on to have that conversation because her story is so different from my story and it's different from Kevin's story. And yet there's still so much overlap and similarity even within those differences. So I appreciate her willingness to come on this evening as we record this episode, or I should say, as I record this episode, I'm going to be flying completely solo. This is going to be a follow-up of sorts to the solo episode that I did uh, some 10 months ago in which I discussed my faith journey. I discussed my upbringing, where I came from, who I was, and where I was at that point in my spiritual life and faith journey. And in this episode, I'm going to be talking about and sort of, of just running through what has occurred over the last year in my life, in my spiritual formation, and in my spiritual journey. There are things that I have touched on and mentioned in this podcast, in the different episodes that we've had, but I haven't really gone into any detail on what a lot of those things are. So in this episode, we'll be discussing those things and some of those shifts that have happened, some of the major events that have occurred in my life and in the lives of my family and family members through this journey of spiritual formation, spiritual growth, and hopefully spiritual maturity and in growing and trying to learn more about Jesus and ultimately trying to know Jesus better and be more like him. So hopefully you won't be bored to tears with it, but here we go. That's what this episode is about. And it's my podcast and well, Kevin's podcast too, but he's gone right now so I can do what I want. So in the last year, there have been a lot of interesting developments in my life. There have been a lot of interesting changes in my spiritual life. And at least I think they're interesting. It hasn't always been easy, but it has always been challenging and has ultimately been transformative. And I hope you guys find it as interesting as as what I have. The biggest thing that I would like to mention um, just at the top of this episode that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when I was visiting with Daniel is that my family and I have left the one cup branch of the churches of Christ. Now for us, this was not an easy decision to make, and we're going to get into the reasons for that in this episode, but it was not a decision that we made lightly. It wasn't a decision that we made cavalierly. It wasn't something that we just rushed into or something that we threw our hands up in frustration over It was a decision that required a lot of thought. It required a tremendous amount of reflection, uh, more prayer and hours in prayer than I can recount, a tremendous amount of study, a tremendous amount of reflection, late night discussions with my wife lying awake at night until two and three o'clock in the morning. It, It was a stressful decision to make. It was not one that came easily. 
but it is the decision that we ultimately landed on. And it's the one that after many hours of prayer and study and contemplation that we arrived at because we saw that the value that that decision would make for our family far outweighed any of the uh, consequences that may arise from it. So we're going to get into some of that this evening. So in departing from any group that you belong to, and and I need to go ahead and back up. I'm probably going to be rambling a lot in this episode, so you're just going to have to bear with me. What has motivated me to discuss this in particular is the feedback and some of the messages that we've received from some of our listeners. We've had several people that have reached out to us that have asked this question that I wrestled with over the last year. I find my convictions changing. I find my paradigms shifting. I find myself on a journey of faith that I never imagined in a million years that I would be on. My certainty is no longer as certain as it used to be, and I'm not sure what to do. I'm not sure whether or not I should stay with the group that I belong to or whether I should find another group. And depending on your particular situation, your answer may be completely different than mine. It may be better for you and for your group to remain where you are. It may be better for you to grow where you're planted, so to speak. It may be better for you to be a positive influence within the group that you find yourself in. And maybe through time and with patience and with study that everyone can grow into a better understanding of truth and that a greater degree of of love and acceptance within the diversity that we all hold can be found for within the group you're in. But at the same time, there may be a measure of toxicity within that group. There may be a measure of of struggle within that group in which remaining within that group is not going to be the best for you. It won't be the best for your spiritual health. It won't be the best for your spiritual formation or your continued growing spiritual maturity. And it very well may be that the best decision that you can make at that point is to leave that group and find another community of believers that are more like-minded with the journey that you're on. Whatever the case may be, no one can make that decision for you. You have to make that decision on your own. And it's not a decision that you should make cavalierly. It's not a decision that you should rush into. It's not one that you should just snap your fingers and think, well, I'm done. I'm going to throw my hands up and go do this in frustration or out of fear or any other thing. It's something that takes prayerful consideration and it takes a tremendous amount of courage and energy to either choose to remain where you are or even to depart and find another group. So if you're in that situation that I found myself in, that our family found itself in, If you have any questions, if you'd like to reach out or get some feedback or some advice, you know, whatever the case may be, I'm not going to say that I'm the expert in this by any stretch of the imagination, but if you need to bend an ear, I'm here for you. And I know Kevin is as well. So one of the questions that I know is probably burning within the minds of many of our brethren that remain within the one cup group. And yes, I still believe that the, that those that are within the one cup group branch of the churches of Christ are my brethren. Part of what made this decision so hard is the fact that I love all of those brethren dearly. I've spent a huge chunk of my time and of my life within that particular group. I've forged wonderful friendships and deep relationships with people in that group. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm of the opinion you're going to be hard pressed to find a better group of people. 
there are some wonderful, amazing Christians within that branch of the churches of Christ. These are some of the most honest, down-to-earth, salt-of-the-earth people that you will ever meet in your life. I have seldom seen more hospitality or a greater degree of love and regard for one another than I have in that group. And that in and of itself is part of what made it so hard to make that choice. Because these are people that I love dearly. These are people that I respect, even though my convictions have shifted and through this spiritual evolution that I've undergone, things have changed and my opinions and perspectives have changed on scripture, how scripture is to be approached and the conclusions that we inevitably arrive at whenever we examine the scriptures and make the effort to arrive at truth. Even though all of that's the case, there's still no love lost and there is no loss of respect for anyone there. And that makes it way more difficult. It's really easy to leave somewhere when you're being abused. It's easy to leave somewhere when you're being castigated. It's easy to leave somewhere when you're being beaten down and browbeaten for what you believe. It's really easy to throw in the towel and say, well, forget you then. I don't want anything else to do with you. I'm just going to go. I'm taking my ball. I'm going home. It's easy when the people that you are in community with make it easy for you. It's way harder when those people are acting out of genuine love for your soul and whenever those people do genuinely love you. It's, it was a, an exceedingly difficult decision to make. And like I said before, and I don't want to beat this dead horse, we spent a lot of time questioning this and contemplating this decision, but we ultimately decided that it would be the best thing for us. And the reasons why, there are several, and we'll get into those. The first reason is that there was no freedom given or space provided to explore faith. You know, the, the purpose of this podcast, as Kevin and I have said before, is to explore faith and pursue the grace of God. One of the things I've really come to appreciate through this spiritual journey is the grace of God. God is so gracious. His grace encompasses and reaches far further and far deeper than I could ever imagine. And I think that it's hard for us to fully comprehend and fully understand just how deeply his grace extends, how gracious and how merciful our God really and truly is. Whenever we really stop and we think about God and we try with our infinite minds to consider and comprehend the infinite, we can't help but fail in that endeavor. God is so much bigger than we are. We are beholden to time. We are beholden to space. And yet God exists outside of those things because he must, because he created them. God himself is far bigger than we give him credit for. And just as we have a hard time fully comprehending the scope of God and his nature and what divinity really is, such is true with his grace. His grace is just as unfathomable. And within our faith journeys, we need to have a freedom to explore. We need to have the room to move around. We need to understand the, I want to say, boundaries of our faith. But so many of those boundaries are artificially determined 
And some of those conclusions, the doctrinal conclusions that form the boundaries of our faith are arbitrarily determined and they are inconsistently applied. And that's something that we'll talk a little bit more about in this podcast and something that Kevin and I talk about ad nauseum throughout all of the episodes of this podcast. So if you want examples of that, just listen to any episode and you can find any example that you wish in that. But for us within the group that we belong to, there was no freedom given to explore our faith. Our faith and our standing before God was largely determined by the certitude that we had in whatever position was at question. Whatever position that one holds and whatever one's conviction is about a given doctrine, that conviction in and of itself was judged by how closely it aligned with the determination of the group as to what that doctrinal truth was. And one of the things that we have talked about before in previous episodes is the idea of inherited faith. If we really think about it, all of us begin our faith journey with an inherited faith. None of us really develop our own faith in a vacuum. It doesn't happen. I mean, we're not, if, if we grow up in a religious household, we're not just given a Bible and told, okay, read this Bible. And based on what you read within this Bible, these are the conclusions you need to hold. Every one of us, whenever we grow up, we read that scripture through the lens of the tradition that we grow up in. If we are born into a Catholic home, we examine the scriptures through a Catholic lens. If we're born into a Baptist home, we examine the scriptures through a Baptist lens. If we're born in a Methodist home, we examine the scriptures through a Methodist lens and, and so on and so forth. We, you understand. We get the, we get the idea. Our spiritual formation and our understanding of truth and our understanding of what the Bible is and what do we do with it is based upon the family that we're born into. It's based upon the faith tradition which provides the lens through which we view Scripture. And if you begin to see the inconsistencies in some of those positions, because I'm convinced that there is no... Christian group out there that does not have at least one or more inconsistent applications of the positions that they have as it relates to doctrine. I think that's just that's just fact as it relates to the status quo of, of Christianity in general. Now, I could be wrong about that. As Kevin is fond of saying, I always reserve the right to be wrong, but I'm, I'm convinced that that's the case. If we begin to explore our faith and some of the conclusions that we end up coming to through honest study and honest evaluation of the scriptures, if it begins to run counter to the status quo of the doctrinal positions that our particular group holds to, well, then that presents problems. At that point, the question even might be asked, if enough of your positions change, well, are you even a member of that group anymore? And I can remember a conversation I had with one brother that we'll mention later. I couldn't help but wonder how many of these positions do I need to change on before I'm not a Christian anymore? And during this faith journey, that was a real problem for me, but we'll, we'll get to that later. The point is, is that we really didn't have the freedom to explore our faith. We had questions about certain doctrines that were considered settled matters. We had questions and misgivings about some of the inferences, or rather I should say implications that those conclusions would lead to. And this was problematic for us. It was especially problematic for me. And I want to go ahead and say this throughout this journey, which I've been going on for about the last six years, I really didn't ever share it with anyone until just recently, until within the last year to 18 months or so. 
And through all that, the person I was more afraid of sharing any of this with was my wife. My wife, having grown up within the One Cup branch of the Churches of Christ, she had been in it and had been through it for far longer than I had at this point. And my concern was, is if I begin to share these these concerns with her or these thoughts with her or these doubts that I was experiencing, this erosion of my certainty in the doctrinal truth claims that our group made and that we rested our faith upon, I was afraid that she would begin to worry about me. I didn't want to stress her out. I didn't want her to think, oh no, well, Lee's just thinking about these things. Oh, I'm worried for his soul. Or worse yet, for her to think that now I'm becoming a false teacher or a terrible reprobate and then disfellowship me and refuse to even sleep in the same bedroom that I did. I didn't want that. I didn't want friction in my marriage. And so I kept a lot of this to myself. And I found out just within the last few months that these are questions that she was wrestling with too, but she never really had the words or the freedom to develop the words to begin to state some of these misgivings that she had and some of these doubts she had. And so that really even drove the point home even more for me that I'm not alone in this. And if you're out there listening to this and you're having these same doubts in your certainty, you're not alone either. I would hope that this podcast has at least demonstrated that if you're having these struggles in your faith, you're not alone. Well, we didn't have the freedom to explore our faith. And that's what led to Kevin and I starting this podcast. He and I have talked about that at length about how he didn't feel like he could really talk to anybody because whenever he did, he would get, you know, shouted down or castigated or marked as a false teacher. And then people would just write him off. And that's, that's a really tough place to be. And so we wanted to provide a safe place to have these conversations with people of dissenting perspectives or, or people that hold the doctrines that we really don't even believe in, but we want people to have a chance to discuss those things. So people can see there's a wide range of beliefs that exist out there within Christianity. Well, whenever we started this podcast, I expected there would be blowback from it. I expected to receive a lot of pushback from the brethren that I had called brethren for so long. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I could say, I was right. It did happen. It did end up coming to fruition. Within about six weeks and maybe six to eight episodes that we had released at that point, I had a brother contact me out of concern. He had contacted me because he was he was worried about what he was hearing on the podcast and how these discussions that Kevin and I were having ran counter to the worldview and perspective and doctrinal opinion, I should say, of the consensus of our particular faith group. And so he wanted to get together and have a conversation with me. And to this day, I am grateful for him and his willingness to come to me with this. So often we just want to talk about people behind their backs. So often we just want to say, oh, did you hear what this brother said? Or did you hear what this sister said? Or did you hear what they're doing? We want to gossip about it. We want to talk about them, but we never want to talk with them. And so to that brother, if you're listening, you know who you are. And even though that conversation really didn't go your way and nor did it really go my way, I'm grateful to you. And I'm thankful for you. And I love you deeply. I love you dearly. I respect you immensely. And I'm thankful that you thought enough about me to come to me with your concerns. Well, he came to me and we had a conversation and it lasted well over six hours. We really didn't get anywhere. And 
through this conversation, we'll circle around to some of the concerns that he had. But one of the things that I had stated is what I just spent the last 15 minutes or so talking about. We don't have the place or the space to ask questions or to question these things. And the statement was made and the remark was made, oh, well, you can ask questions. It's good to ask questions. But make sure you only discuss these things with faithful preachers. Find people who are faithful to ask these questions to, and they can help lead you to the truth of them. And by faithful preacher, what is meant are those preachers who hold these positions and who know these doctrinal perspectives and can guide you back into a better understanding of them and get your thinking right. That's really what's being implied with that statement. And the issue with that is twofold. Number one, it creates an echo chamber in which you're not really exploring your faith at all. You're not really exploring anything as much as you're reestablishing what is purported to be the truth. And I say that in quotes of the matter. And the second issue, and this is really the issue that I took with it, is that it almost makes it seem as if you don't have a brain in your own head to think with. And the issue with that is, is that these positions and doctrinal positions, and at that time it was very much still about doctrinal positions for me, these are doctrinal positions that I knew and I knew well. These are positions that I had studied and looked at, even though it was through the lens of this particular faith tradition. But these are things that I had preached about. These are things that I had taught about. These are things that I had held private Bible studies about. And so this idea of talk, you know, talk to these faithful preachers, you need to talk to these men about it because they know the truth, quote unquote, about it. In other words, they are convicted and hold the right conclusions on the matter. Well, why should I talk to them if I already know what their talking points are? How does hearing what I have already heard and reestablishing and reaffirming what I have already known and what I have already taught, these very things that I'm questioning from the same position I'm questioning them from, how does that help develop faith? How does that help one move beyond those questions? Because if I have a question about a particular doctrinal issue and I already know talking point A, B, C, D, and E and the proof texts that support those things and those positions, what good does it hear me to hear talking point A, B, C, D, and E referred to again and discussed again from the same perspective I've already held? The issue is that perspective in and of itself. It's not really something that's going to do me or someone else in my position any good. But if we ask questions and we're seeking only the answers that fall in line with the narrative that we hold to, we're not exploring our faith. At that point, I would even say we're not even testing all things so that we can hold fast to that which is good. We're only testing these things and we're only going to test them by these parameters. And at least to me, that doesn't seem healthy. So that entire perspective is not something that, that I believe to be helpful and not having the freedom to explore faith was a really large part of us leaving. And that's not to say I didn't reach out to certain preachers or so-called faithful preachers to ask them these questions. I did. I did try that. But the answers received were the same answers that I had already believed for so long. And these were the answers that I was beginning to deconstruct and that I was beginning to work through. 
And so in that sense, it, it really didn't help matters. And in some cases, there were really no other answers provided at all. Another part that played in our decision to, to leave, and I alluded to this in the discussion I had with Brother Daniel, is being benched. One of the ways within the churches of Christ, if you're not familiar with how the churches of Christ works, is that the worship service is structured and men are called upon to take different active leadership roles within that worship service. So a man will be called upon to lead songs or multiple men may be called upon each to lead one or two songs. A man will give the lesson or preach. And this man may be a paid preacher who holds the position of pulpit minister or in some churches, a practice called mutual edification is conducted in which multiple men rotate on a teaching schedule. Either case is fine, and, and in either case, there's a lot of good and a lot of edification that comes to the church through either, either practice that, that's utilized as far as teaching goes. Another man will be called upon to lead the, uh, the communion service and to bless the bread and to bless the, uh, the fruit of the vine, and other men may pass those emblems. And then that same man or another man may you know, say a few remarks before the collection is taken. And that's kind of how it works. Different people are called upon to take a different active participatory leadership role within the worship. And most of the time these men are called upon, these people are called upon in a manner that's commensurate with their ability to serve within that capacity. So if you have someone who maybe has a really good voice, but they're not a very good public speaker, they're not going to be called upon to teach because their public speaking skills are not adequate to that task. But that same brother may be called upon to lead a class or to lead a Bible study or something along those lines, because in a small group setting, they're very learned, they're knowledgeable, they work better in that capacity. There may be a man who is an excellent public speaker. He's an excellent orator. He's well studied. So he'll be called upon to teach, but he can't carry a tune in a bucket. So he's not called upon to lead a song. Why would you do that? That's a bad idea. Maybe these men don't have an ability to lead a song or to teach. So they'll be called upon to pass the basket or they'll be called upon to, to wait on the table as it's called and, and direct thoughts in the communion portion of the service. In any case, different men, based on their capabilities and capacities, are called upon to participate within the service in some way. And as many of you have noted, I'm very good at talking. I enjoy talking. Um, I'm not as well studied as so many other people. As far as the Bible goes, I still really consider myself a novice. I'm always learning. I'm always trying to learn more. But I would have, I had a teaching role. I would teach. There, there was no role within the worship of the church that I could not be called upon to serve in, in some capacity. I'm not the best singer in the world by any stretch of the imagination, but I can sing. So I would lead songs. I would lead the communion. I would lead a prayer. I would um, be called upon to teach. There were all roles that I would take. Well, as this unfolded, as time unfolded with the development of this podcast and as more and more people were becoming aware of the work that Kevin and I were involved in. There were concerns about this based on some of the statements being made. And in our home congregation, I was benched. Now, that in and of itself wasn't an issue at first. I had a conversation with another brother who I love and respect dearly, who I think the absolute world of who came to me with these concerns, and I still appreciate him to this day. I am so thankful that he was willing to come to me with them. 
he shared in the teaching role within the church that we were a part of. And after about three hours of talking one night after services, during which this conversation, I broke down and cried because I had been struggling and stressed out with all of these questions and all of this junk that I had been dealing with for so long. He said, I think it would be better if I handle all of the teaching for a little while. And I agreed with him 100%. And I still agree with him that that was the best decision that could have been made. It's completely understandable. At this point, my convictions were shifting. My faith was evolving. My spiritual journey was growing some legs and, and things were really starting to change within me. But I no longer shared the same pattern of convictions that were expressed by this particular faith group. And you don't want someone in the pulpit teaching something that runs counter to those beliefs. Now, had I stayed in the teaching position, I had no desire to get up and teach something that ran fully counter to the convictions and implications and inferences that our particular group held to at that time. I had no desire to do that. I would keep it general. I would keep it low key, but I understood where he was coming from. And I still think that that was the wisest course of action to take. And I still agree 100% that that was the right thing to do. But the problem was, is it didn't stay there. I was still called upon to take a role, to lead a song, lead a prayer, or to wait the table or serve communion. But eventually it got to the point where that wasn't happening anymore. Eventually it got to the point where I wasn't being called upon to pray a prayer. Eventually it got to the point where I wasn't being called upon to lead the communion. Eventually it got to the point where I was only being called upon to lead a song. And that's fine. This, this isn't about my ego being bruised because I'm not being called on to lead. So I'm just going to leave and take my ball and go home. It's not about that at all. It was never about that. The issue wasn't not being called on. The issue was that there was no further discussion after this point about what was going on. There was no effort made to understand where I was coming from. There was no effort made to try to dive into these things and answer these questions and study them out together as a group or even one-on-one -on -one with anybody. No one brought any of these concerns to me at all. And that really kind of hurt in a way. And the thing that I was guilty of was no more than questioning some things and asking questions and exploring this in a public way. You know, even within our worship services within the churches of Christ, if there is an error on the part of a brother who's called upon to participate, if there's some some sin of moral turpitude or some crime committed, if if a brother is seen going out to a bar and getting drunk one night, or if they're seen going and carousing around town, or if they're caught shoplifting or something like that, or if they get into a fight, you know, with someone and it's publicized, or or even if it's not, and there are no legal ramifications for whatever choices that person makes, they won't be called upon to take part in the service because of the sin or because of the the error, the misstep that took place. And that's understandable as well. But I hadn't committed any guilt or, or crime of moral turpitude. I wasn't guilty of any break in morality. 
I wasn't guilty of any error, even as we defined it. I wasn't guilty of any erroneous practice apart from publicly discussing some of these questions and wrestling with these things through the form of this podcast. Publicly discussing these ideas and these convictions, hosting this podcast with Kevin was the sin that I was guilty of. And if we circle back around to that first conversation that I referred to, that sin was cavorting and talking with and engaging with a false teacher. Kevin was labeled and referred to as a false teacher by several who had approached me with their concerns, and that was based on 2 John uh, verses 9 through 11. Now, Kevin's no stranger to being labeled a false teacher. He was labeled that by so many within the fellowship he belonged to, and he was labeled by that with by practically everybody in the fellowship that I belong to. And I'd like to go ahead and take a moment to read 2 John, uh, which is only one chapter, and read verses 9 through 11. Here the apostle writes, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. And the brother that came to me before, that first brother who I had that initial six-hour conversation with, this was the biggest point he was making. This was the biggest error in his mind, and this was the biggest concern that he had. You're cavorting with a false teacher. This man does not abide in the doctrine of Christ. And you're greeting him. You're receiving him into your house. You're calling him a brother. You're sharing in his evil deeds. And that pendergrass, you've got to cut it off. You've got to let that go. And if in this contrast you consider the doctrine of Christ to be a synecdoche for all of the particular doctrinal positions your group might hold, well, yeah, that makes sense. And for those listening, a synecdoche is something that, it's a figure of speech that means the part represents the whole. For example, if you buy a new car or if your friend buys a new car, they may say to you, man, I like your new wheels. They're not just talking about the wheels on your car. The term wheels is a synecdoche that represents the whole car. So in this sense, the doctrine of Christ is often viewed as representative of all of the doctrinal positions that your group holds. For example, our group held to the idea that communion should only be practiced with one loaf and with one cup. Whenever a congregation observes the communion, they must use one loaf and one cup that everyone partakes of. And even now, I still can see the symbolism, the powerful symbolism that can exist within that. And we'll talk about that here in just a little while. But the point is, is that the doctrine of Christ from the viewpoint of so many people means all of the doctrinal positions a particular faith group might hold. In ours, it's having one loaf and one cup used in the communion. Another position was that women should never cut their hair. That long hair in 1 Corinthians 11 means hair that is not cut and that men can't grow long hair at all. Another example, which is common to the churches of Christ and also the Eastern Orthodox Church and also the Primitive Baptist Church, is that no instrument should be used in worship. We can't use instruments in our song service in worship to God. And there's, there's a whole smattering of other doctrines that we could we could consider. But the point that 
my brother was making whenever he came to me is that Kevin is a false teacher because he doesn't abide in the doctrine of Christ. And to him, the doctrine of Christ meant all of the doctrinal positions that our people held to. But if we look at the context of 1 John and 2 John, if we looked at the context that John writes in, John isn't referring to the entire doctrinal discourse and the um, all-encompassing of every doctrinal position that our group holds to. He's talking about a very specific thing. Now, I'm just going to take a moment to preach just for a moment, if I may. If we look at 1 John chapter 2, we see John mention this idea. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 22, the apostle says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So those who deny Christ are liars. Those who are Antichrist are those who deny God and those who deny Christ. Those who deny Jesus, specifically those who deny his divinity, those who deny his sonship, those who deny his full humanity and his full divinity are not of Christ. They are not of God. But he who acknowledges Christ has the Father also. John goes on to say in 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time, verse 12 says. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And in verse 15, he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So what we see John break down for his readers, and we need to understand the cultural context and the literary context of John, he's battling against the Gnostics, and he's writing these epistles as a polemic against the Gnostics, who believed that Jesus was a docetic spirit. Jesus was not fully human. He was only divine. He existed as a hologram, and his physical body wasn't even really physical, and that's a whole other podcast in and of itself. But the point is, is John's purpose that he writes to is to establish Christ's divinity and humanity. John is saying that if you are of God, you accept that Jesus is real. And not only do you love God, but you demonstrate your love for God and your fidelity to God by expressing love for one another. So whenever John writes of a false teacher, this is the context that he's speaking to. If we go to 2 John and we begin in verse 4, John says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not a literal lady, he's speaking to the church. Now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. So this commandment that they have heard from the beginning is love God and love one another. 
That's the commandment. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So if we bear that in mind when we consider who this false teacher is that John is discussing in 2 John verses 9 through 11, this deceiver, this false teacher is one who does not regard Christ as coming in the flesh, and this is one who does not abide in God, nor does God abide in him because he does not fully love God, nor does he love his neighbor, nor does he love his brethren. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of Christ is the divinity of Christ. Whoever does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine that Christ has come in the flesh, that Christ is fully divine and still fully human, that Christ lived and breathed and died, that we might be redeemed. If they come to you and they don't bring this, they are a false teacher. You do not allow them into your home. You do not bear them God's speed. You do not partake in their evil deeds in denying Christ's essential humanity and his essential sonship. Kevin ain't guilty of that, y'all. And if you think Kevin's guilty of that, you haven't listened to very many episodes of this podcast. Kevin loves Jesus with every fiber of his being and as a result of this, it can't be said that Kevin fits the description of 2 John Verses 9 through 11. But I fully understand why these brethren felt and still feel the way they do. And I fully understand that they probably think, and well, I know they think, I'm a false teacher now myself. And I get it. I really do. Within that paradigm in which the doctrine of Christ means all of these particular doctrines we hold to, well, from their perspective, my soul's in imminent danger and it needed rescuing. I had deviated from those old paths and was dangerously towing the line of apostasy and have fully engaged in and entered into apostasy. But in a sense, my apostasy was due to my shifting perspectives and the evolution of my convictions on certain doctrinal matters. Through this process, I was becoming aware of my own inconsistencies with the doctrinal positions I had held to and that were shared by my faith community, and I was trying to find a way to reconcile those inconsistencies, and I found little to no help in that within my faith community. And as a result of that, in large, that's a large part of why, as a result, that we ultimately decided we needed to leave. And what it really all boiled down to was this question. Can God's grace, will God's grace, cover doctrinal error? Or if we put it another way, will God show mercy to those who are operating within their best capacity to serve him, but might have a uh, misunderstanding about some doctrinal issue or practice? And one of the things that I can think of that even within the one cup churches of Christ that we didn't agree on was the idea of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. There are some within the one cup branch of the churches of Christ and within other denominations out there as well who believe that the Holy Spirit operates directly on the heart of the person within some not understood or poorly understood or, or I should say a better word would be mysterious way. And then there's another group that believes that the Holy Spirit only operates now through the word. That is the Holy Spirit only operates through the Bible. 
The idea is, is that the scriptures, the Bible is inspired of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit speaks through the Bible. And through that medium, the Holy Spirit operates on the hearts of men. Well, which one is true? If we suppose that the biblical position, and, and by that I mean the position that the Holy Spirit acts through the Word, we'll call it the Word-only position. If the Word-only position is correct, but the direct indwelling position is incorrect, does that mean that the brother who believes in the end, that in the direct indwelling position is lost? Does that mean that their soul is lost because they hold the, quote, wrong belief? Well, if it's the other way around, what if the word-only position is the wrong position, but those who believe in the direct indwelling, they're the ones who are right? Do those who hold the word-only position, will they be lost? No one within our group would say yes to either one of those concepts. They would say, well, that's one of those things that, that it doesn't really matter what you believe. It doesn't, it, it's not a salvation issue. It's not one of those things that condemns you. But what about anything else that we could plug into that paradigm? We could remove the work of the Holy Spirit and leave that blank, and we could insert any doctrine we want to. One doctrine we talked about earlier in this podcast is the idea of the hair being the covering of 1 Corinthians 11, and that that covering is only an intact, effective covering if it is uncut. And I'm not going to get into the theological arguments behind that position, but suffice to say, that's the position that a lot of people hold. And this is a question that I've had for several people who hold to that idea and that position and never really did get an answer from one way or another. Suppose you have a Christian sister who loves God with all of her heart, with all of her soul, with all of her mind, with all of her strength. She loves her neighbor as herself. She exemplifies what it means to be a follower of Christ. She loves Jesus. She loves her family. She is an amazing wife. She's an amazing mother. She is involved in her faith community. She serves at the soup kitchen. She serves at the local food bank. She, in her spare time, knits hats for premature babies in the NICU. And she does all this from a place of love. She does all this because she genuinely loves her fellow man and she wants to show Jesus to the world. She has done everything she can to show Jesus to everyone she comes into contact with. She has loved and shown her fidelity to God through her faithfulness. She dies. And she stands in judgment before Jesus. And Jesus says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. And she says, much like the parable that Jesus gave, well, when did I do any of that to you? And he says, in as much as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. You showed me to the world. You exemplified my love to those who are outside, who desperately needed to know me. And you showed them who I was through your actions and through your love. But you trimmed your hair. And you see in 1 Corinthians 11, the Holy Spirit revealed to Paul that that hair is actually the covering. And it's only long hair if it's fully uncut. And because you cut your hair, I'm sorry, you're not going to make it. And he pulls a lever and she drops through a trap door into a devil's hell for all eternity. That was That just didn't make sense to me. That was unfathomable to me that that wouldn't be the case. And it stands to reason that if you have someone that expresses that fidelity and they show that love, well, what difference does it make whether they have bangs or trim their split ends? But then we can replace it with something else. 
What if we take it from an individual to a group? Will a group of Christians who love God and express their fidelity to God and show their love to their fellow man through everything that they do, will they be condemned if they use an instrument in their worship? And in this, I'm not saying these are people that are ignorant of what the Bible might or might not say about these items or these topics. These are people who have studied and through careful study and consideration and contemplation, they've just arrived at a different place and a different conclusion than what other people have. They say, I see your rationale. I see why you believe what you believe. But X, Y, and Z leads me to think that your conclusion is not the best. Will they be condemned for that? Will a group of Christians who love God and love their neighbor be condemned because they observe the Lord's Cupper with multiple loaves and multiple cups? These are those questions that represented the application of that concept that we need to study the word and we need to do what the Bible says. But then we're left with the ultimate question, what does the Bible say about these things? Does the Bible speak to these things? Essentially, from our perspective, our group weren't Christians only. We were the only Christians. We were the only group of real bona fide Christians because we were doing the right rituals, the right ways and had the right doctrines that we practice and taught the right way. But even then, there were divisions within our group involving the work of the Holy Spirit, as we said before, the qualifications for those who could be elders, principles and practices concerning marriage, divorce and remarriage, and even as silly as whether or not eating in the church building is, is considered proper or improper. And what I eventually came to realize is that the issue wasn't one of which doctrinal positions were correct. It wasn't an issue of, do I have the right doctrinal position on this or that or the other or whatever else? The issue was how I was approaching the scriptures in the first place. I was approaching my study of the Bible like an attorney who would approach finding case law so that they could establish and justify their legal opinion on a particular matter. And that's just not how the Bible works. As Kevin and as multiple guests and as I have stated multiple times on this podcast, when this is the approach that we take to Scripture, we end up ignoring the historical context, the cultural context, and the literary context of Scripture. We ignore the intent of the author who wrote the Scripture. We ignore how those who originally received it would have applied it. And worst of all, we ignore the message the Holy Spirit revealed to them and ultimately to us. And as a case in point, I can't think of a better case than the cup. Whenever we consider communion, those within the one cup branch of the churches of Christ consider how communion is practiced to be right up there and equal to considering the sonship and deity of Jesus Christ himself. And if we take a look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 regarding the communion, in verses 23 through 29, he gives instructions to the church in Corinth for how the communion is to be observed. Here he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now we'll stop there for a moment. Whenever we talk about the loaf, the bread that's to be used in the communion, or that we use in the communion, the one cup church and those who ascribed to the one cup perspective will say, well, what does he mean by do this in memory of me? He means to do what he did. He means you take one loaf and you all partake of that loaf. In verse 25, it says in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
in Matthew's account of the communion in or the Lord's Supper when it was established in Matthew chapter 26, this is very similar to the language that Matthew uses. Jesus takes bread and he says, do the, he takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, says, do this in memory of me. He takes the cup and said and blesses and says, do this in memory of me. And the question is, is what does this mean and do this? From the one cup perspective, it means you take one loaf. It means you take one cup and you do what Jesus did. But is that what it means? Does it mean be sure, be double sure, be triple sure that whenever you observe the communion, that you take one and only one cup in your congregation? Because if you don't, you place all of the souls in your congregation at jeopardy. Was the purpose of the Holy Spirit to make sure that everyone knew you only must, you must only take one cup. If you take more than one cup, if you use two cups and run one down each side of the building, if everyone has their own cup that they partake of, if you do that, you, oh my goodness, you do so to the damnation of your own soul. From the one cup perspective, yes, that is the case. That is what is believed. Verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, well, what does an unworthy manner mean? Well, it means that you're using more than one cup. You're not doing it the right way. Takes the cup and the of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, verse 28, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. It's a big deal. But the question still remains, is that the point the Holy Spirit wanted to make? If we approach the scripture from an attorney perspective, from a lawyer perspective, and we're trying to establish what the case law is for how communion is to be observed, well then, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But if we consider context, if we consider the purpose of the commandment, if we consider the purpose of communion itself, well then that really changes things if you think about it. The purpose of communion is to remember Jesus. The purpose of the communion is to remind us that we are one body, to remind us that Christ died and suffered and shed his blood that we might be redeemed. That is the purpose of it. That seems to be what the Holy Spirit's trying to communicate. If our souls rested on how many cups we use in the communion or how many loaves we share from in the communion, then why isn't the Holy Spirit explicitly 100% clear in saying, make sure you absolutely only use one cup in its observance? And through this process, this, this is the point that, that I'm getting at here. Is that the point the Holy Spirit was making through Paul? And it doesn't seem to be. And that's just a picture of the process that, that my wife and I have gone through in determining where we are and what we need to do. Through this process, I realized the issue was not the doctrinal positions I held and whether I had the right ones or the wrong ones. It was the entire framework I was using in my study of the scriptures. And, you know, for a long time in the early days of this podcast, I didn't really share anything about it with anybody on my personal social media channels. I didn't really discuss it with any of my friends or acquaintances within the church. And it was mainly out of fear of confrontation and castigation. But after that time, after a time, that fear it ended up waning. It ended up melting away. And it's largely because of all of you that listen 
It's because of you, the audience that has reached out to Kevin, that's reached out to me, that's reached out to both of us. And you of all that have expressed how much of a help this has been to you, that emboldened me to begin sharing this with other people. And whenever I realized that in sharing this and in speaking this and in seeing that I wasn't really alone anymore, that really helped bring about some clarity. Whenever I realized that my entire approach to the scriptures was predicated upon a false notion of what the Bible was and how I needed to read it, it made it a lot easier to reorient myself to what the Bible actually is and what it is that we're supposed to do with it. Through prayer and careful study and so many of those late-night conversations I mentioned before, we made the decision that we would leave the congregation we were a part of at the first of the year, that we would leave the one cup fellowship that we had belonged to for so long behind. And in doing so, we have found a new group. We still worship with the churches of Christ. We found a wonderful community that we have become a part of. This is a community that is much more ecumenical. Rather than believing that they are the only Christians and the only ones that have it right, this is a group of people that view themselves as Christians only, not the only Christians. Our goal and mission is to study the scriptures and to ultimately put them to practice and application in our lives. But there's also space to hold convictions that may run counter to the convictions of others. There's still room for us to grow and to explore faith as we pursue grace. We're allowed to do that. We're not looked down upon for doing that. And there's a tremendous amount of love and charity that's expressed within that. It's been a hard journey at times. It's been one that has been met with many sleepless nights. But ultimately, the decision that we made to depart from our fellowship has been one that has been met with much blessing. As hard as it was and as much as we miss those that, that we have departed from, and as much as we love them and as much as we wish them the best and hope that much of their work that they do to spread Jesus and the knowledge of Him to those who need it is successful, we find ourselves or found ourselves unable to continue onward for those reasons that we just spent an hour discussing and so many more. That's pretty much where we are now. We're in a very good place. We're enjoying where we are now. And we're excited to see what the future holds. And like I said earlier in this episode, if you find yourself struggling with these same questions, you're not alone. And if you need to talk to anybody, Kevin and I both welcome the opportunity to discuss this with you if you think that we can be a help to you. You're never alone. Jesus is always there. And you have brethren who love you, regardless of what denominational banner that they fly their flag under. Well, this is all I really have to say for tonight. I never want to dismiss and close this out without extending my thanks to all of you. We appreciate you all very much. We appreciate the audience that we are growing. If this is a podcast, not only this episode, but just this podcast, this work in general, if this is something you believe could be helpful to someone else, share it with your friends. Share it with those who you think that this could help, that it could be an encouragement to. If it's been an encouragement to you, then it could likely be an encouragement to someone else. I know you've all been an encouragement to us, and that's the whole reason we keep doing it. Follow us on Facebook. Give us a five-star rating on 
iTunes, on whatever platform it is you use. Share it far and wide. We thank you all so much, and we bid you all good night.